On episode 289 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn how to serve and volley like a pro with Taylor Dent. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey there, this is Mehrban, your host, and I hope you're having a great week so far. I was rummaging through my interviews from the past, and I found a really insightful one with former pro Taylor Dent. As many of you know, Taylor achieved a career high ranking of number 21 in the world on the ATP Tour, and he won four singles titles. He also reached the fourth round of Wimbledon and the U.S. Open and placed number four in the 2004 Olympics. Taylor's defeated tons of tennis legends like Andy Roddick, Novak Djokovic, James Blake, who was also on the podcast before, and many other players. And I thought I would bring this interview back for you because it's really a fantastic one where you're going to learn how to think like a professional servant volleyer and how to use the right tactics when you're at the net, drills that you can perform to become a better servant volleyer, um, how to hit a huge serve. Taylor Dent um, hit, I think, 149 mile per hour serve, um, one of the fastest ever, and much more. So, yeah, I really. Hope that you enjoy this one. So without further ado, here is my interview with Taylor Dent. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. It's really a great honor to have former ATP pro and current coach Taylor Dent on the podcast. Uh, Taylor, I really do appreciate you joining me today uh, on the first day of the year. So uh, it's really a pleasure to have you on. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. Happy New Year. You know, hopefully uh, I can I can give you some good info for the podcast. Oh, you definitely will, Taylor. I'm sure of it. And it's funny. And I was I actually watched two matches of yours on YouTube today, and uh, I ended up watching four tiebreaks, which isn't really surprising yeah. considering <laughs> your game. But uh, I was watching you play against Pete uh, and Cincy in 2000, and then against against uh, Andy Murray in 2005 at the same tournament. But I mean, do you have a lot of flashbacks? You know, like to those matches when you're actually watching other pro tennis matches on TV. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm pretty bad at it. You know, I've, I've talking to some other tennis players like Agassi had, can just bring back memories and recall every match he's played and a lot of points he's played. For me, uh, some matches stand out for one reason or another, either because they were significantly good or significantly bad. Um, but overall in my career, you know, people tell me I've played this person so many times. I'm like, no, 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 that doesn't sound right. And then we look it up online and it is true. So I'm, I'm not, uh, super in tune with, with, uh, my tennis past match by match, but there are some certain highlights that I do remember and recall and some certain lowlights that I do as well, unfortunately. Ah, well, you know, if I ask you about a match, you don't remember, you just feel free to make it up, you know, to, to your benefit. It's no problem. No problem. <laughs> Exactly. There you go. Yeah, sweet. But uh, I mean, Taylor, I was just uh, obviously doing some research on you. And I mean, it's really incredible the 
amount of sports in your family. Uh, I mean, your mom, dad, half brother, godfather all play tennis, uh, very high levels. And I mean, your cousins, you know, extremely famous volleyball player, Misty May trainer. So, I mean, do you think having an athletic family gave you an advantage or a head start, you know, versus somebody who might not be uh, have a family like as entrenched in pro sports? Yeah, I mean, I think the advantages played out like this is, you know, the memories I have with my older brother, with my father, even even with my cousin, is we're always playing games. You know what I mean? We're outside all the time messing around, and if there's a ball, if there's a Frisbee, if there's anything around, we'll figure out a game to play. So the competitive nature it was always there, and uh, just, just the, the amount of time we spent outside messing around i mean it's just it, it does add up and you know i have four kids of my own and the two older ones are you know are boys and they're outside playing a lot and you can just see they, they pick up a lot of things naturally we, we kind of force them to be outside and, and they enjoy it and they compete against each other and then when they go play golf or they go play tennis or some of these other sports they just have a good athletic awareness so so yeah in a sense for sure i think um genetics uh you know was a help to me, but also just the culture of, of being around so many competitive people was, was also a huge help. Yeah, just a lot of great things there, uh, a lot of people to look up to, and, and also, like you mentioned, you know, just a lot of competing in different types of sports, developing that competitive nature. It's a, a huge characteristic of great players like yourself. And, uh, I mean, you mentioned, you know, that, that there are a lot of sports that you have your kids uh, play and also you, you were exposed to. I mean, was there any particular sport or sports that you think actually, uh, when you look at that sport or sports, like they really actually helped you uh, with your tennis in some sort of aspect? Um, again, I just did, I never really stuck to anything. You know, when I was young, I, I, I did everything that there was. If something was fun, I would, I would go after it really hard. And then, you know, six months later, nine months later, I'd get bored with it and, and do something else. So for me saying that there was one for me personally, I would say no, but I, I do say this, you know, coaching as many kids as I've coached now since I've been retired, it's actually staggering to me how well soccer players can pick up tennis that and that surprised me because obviously soccer players are not allowed to use their hands they don't hit things with their hands and don't have to time that but their body awareness their movement on the court their spacing on the court is really really good and if i have someone that struggles with that um and you know in the past i've i've taken them out and i've done soccer drills with them and and just kind of encourage them to to get in that because it's amazing how quickly soccer players pick up tennis yeah that makes a lot of sense they have to have great balance and i mean their footwork is on point uh and yeah uh, that, that's great stuff there taylor and and as far as your training environment when you were a junior i mean people have different upbringings i was wondering i mean did you do mostly academies or private clubs or just you know uh, a lot of like arranged practices or how was that like you uh, for you most of the time um yeah for me specifically my father was a coach so when i was mm-hmm. you know starting to play tennis he was at the club all day working. So I would, you know, get off of school and whether I was playing or not, I was hanging out at the tennis club. So I'd be, you know, hitting balls on, on the, on a wall, on a backboard. If, if nobody was there to hit with, if there was people to hit with, I'd be playing, you know, points all day. Um, once I got older and a little bit better, my dad ran an after school program and I did that every day. I don't think there's a right and a wrong as, as far as like what you, I mean, you talk about successful people, Pete Sampras, you know, he played up, 
you know, and, and lost all the time in the juniors. And not many people can do that. And then you have someone like Jack Sock, you know, he won all the time in the juniors. And, and you have Serena Williams and Venus Williams. They just didn't play many tournaments. They trained with each other. I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to kind of go about it. It's whatever works for you. Um, but I do think the mindset is similar. You know, Pete was going out there and he was playing to get better. He was playing with the goal of professional tennis, same as the Williams sisters, you know, kind of same as Jack Sock. So I feel that um, it, mindset is a really, really big deal. And that's what I try to impress on the kids that I work with. No drill is perfect and is going to be the magic fix. No match, no, no set of circumstances is going to be the magic fix. It's, it's your mindset. What are you doing out here? Are you, are you out here to have fun and mess around? And that's fine but you just have to take what comes with that. Or are you out here to pursue, you know, some really, really big things in tennis, you know, and that should reflect how you behave on the court and how you train. That's right, Taylor. And I remember actually, uh, you know, related to what you said, I, I read on, on the Dent Academy's website and it said that winning matches at the junior level does not predict future success. And uh, so I was kind of wondering if maybe you could expound upon that because that's a really important point, I think, for everybody to hear. Well, yeah, and, and it, it, it's complicated, but, you know, we'll, just give you like kind of broad strokes. Number one, when you're 10, 12, 14, even 16 years old, the problem is you don't play against that type of opponent forever. You know, your opponent changes and, and gets better and stronger and older, more mature, more skilled uh, as you do the same thing. So it's not a stagnant opponent. You know, when you're playing 12 and under tennis, that, that opponent across the court is going to change so much. Whereas if you kind of relate that to basketball, the hoop's not going to change. Obviously, the defenders will. Um, if you relate it to golf, you know, you could play a golf course 20 years ago, go back you know, and play it uh, today, and it's going to be roughly the same course, the exact same course. So you kind of have to keep that in mind. And that's why, you know, in, at younger ages, typically the more consistent players win. And, and, you know, the, the, or this, I should say the safer players win and why that works is, you know, when you're young, you don't have the skill to open up the court, get this, you know, take that safe ball that that opponent has hit, hit an angle or hit them off the court, come in and finish a volley off at net. That just doesn't happen at younger ages very often. And if some player can do that, can they do it for a two out of three set match? Probably not at a young age. And so that's why typically safer players win when you are, when you're younger and, and kind of, you know, coming up and, and lower levels, but, you know, fast forward, it, it starts to transition and it's, it's not really safe to play safe anymore. Cause if you put a ball in the middle of the court against somebody in the, you know, top 200 in, in men's tennis or women's tennis, you're done. That ball is not coming back. You know, you're, you're not going to get that ball back. So what is safe when you're 14 and under or 12 and under or whatever, and even 16 and under is no longer safe when you are 18, 20, 22 and, and trying to you know play high level college tennis and high level professional tennis. Yeah, such a great point. Taylor, appreciate that. I mean, I'm living proof of that. You know, I played in juniors and I had my best years probably in the 16s. And then, uh, you know, after that, the players who I used to beat by just grinding them out, they would they'd have these weapons and it was really tough to to beat them. So uh, I appreciate that. You know, another point that you made a few minutes ago was about it, it really depends on the, the player, whether it's better for them to play up constantly like Pete or like Jack, like win yeah. everything in your age group. I was wondering if maybe there is any way to decipher uh, like what, to, you know, which path to follow depending on what type of player. I mean, it's, it's a trial and error. And you know what? The, the people who know mm -hmm. the, the player 
best, you know, that they're the player's full-time coach, the parents, they know what situation is going to be the healthiest for them. I mean, I find it hard when um, some parents come and say, oh, you know, my, my child is starting to do better. We should play them up. And it's like, well, they're, you know, do it for the right reasons. If you're doing it because you're running out of competition and then, then that's fine. I get it. You know what I mean? Um, if you're doing it to avoid mm-hmm. having to play the tough matches, because in my opinion, my dad's opinion and, and Jenny's opinion, the toughest matches to play are the ones you're supposed to win. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not the, the matches where, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. I've got nothing to lose. This player's better than me. I'm just going to, that's an easy match to play. And you don't want to get good at playing easy matches. You want to get good at playing those tough nitty gritty matches to where it tests your mental stamina out there. Cause that's a big part of it. And so I just, I think no matter what you do as a, as a young tennis player, as a parent, as a coach, it has to be calculated. There has to be a good reason. You know what I mean? It's just like, you know, I can relate that to a all. So you know, I was working with, we, we as a team were working with Jared Donaldson for a while and a young American players just, he's had some injuries. Uh, he should be hopefully back soon. Um, but he played a match. I was with him down in Miami, and he played uh, Malik Jaziri, Tunisian guy, really, really good player. I, I think the guy's a fantastic player. He's got, like, mm-hmm. for the tour level, I think an A-minus serve and an A-minus forehand, and that's comparing it to, you know, Federer and those guys. His backhand's really rough. You know, he slices a lot of backhands, and it's kind of mm-hmm. easy to pick at. It's easy to get at. So I'm like, Jared, you know, we've got a, you got a really, really good chance here. You know, just, just the game plan is just pound it into this guy's backhand, and you're gonna, you're not gonna get hurt. He's just gonna rally at the very least. And then as soon as he hangs one, you can go wherever you want. Just get him off the court, and and then be, start being productive in the point that way, right? So I'm thinking, mm, here we go, we got this. This is gonna be a big win for Jared. And Jared goes out, and it's kind of the match doesn't look very good for the first, you know, half of the first set. And then all of a sudden, Jared's playing this guy's forehand for the rest of the match. And I'm like flabbergasted. I can't even fathom it. And, and this guy is hitting great forehands everywhere. The points Jared is winning, they're like highlight points, you know, where Jared's running alley to alley, um, you know, and just somehow hitting some miraculous shots. And so anyway, Jared ends up playing the best match I had seen him play up to that, at that level. And he ends up winning in a breaker in the third set. And, you know, I'm happy, but inside I'm furious. You know, I'm honestly really upset. Like what happened to the yeah. game plan? So I, you know, me as a, as a player, I always like, I mean, as a person, I always like to kind of hear the other side of the story first, but inside I'm, I'm upset. I'm ready to, you know, blow a fuse. Right. So I go, what happened to the game plan? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I, I tried hitting to his backhand, but I just didn't like the way the points were going and his forehand was better for sure. But I like that ball. I like the way the points were going from there. And I just felt like I had a better chance to win this match playing his forehand rather than his backhand. And, you know, it kind of stunned me. I'm like, you know what? I can't get upset. He had a reason. I don't agree with it. You know what I mean? And that's, that's frustrating for me, but at, at least he had a legit thought out reason for doing something. And so I think that lesson can be translated to your development have a legitimate thought out reason um, for whatever it is that you're doing. You know what I mean? And, and it can't be some emotional knee jerk thing because, you know, you, you see drop shots work uh, in 12 and under tennis. Well, how many drop shots do good players hit, you know, at high level tennis? I mean, they're hitting, you know, one or two a match, three a match, maybe, you know? So I just feel like whatever you do, it's got to be thought out right. and you have to have a purpose. Yeah, yeah, 100%, Taylor. Um, But so what does it take, you know, because sometimes 
uh, juniors, obviously, they're not, I don't know if, you know, maybe they're not developmentally enough or they don't have like the um, coaching for it. I mean, w- what does it take to, to get these junior players to, to really think more out there? I, I think as far as thinking more, I don't know. You know, we, so we have a parent at the academy and he started reading, I think it's called The Inner Game of Tennis. Mm-hmm. That's what I think the the book is. It is, yeah. And so he was asking me about something, and this topic came up, and I said, I, I think, me personally, the worst thing you can do is overcoach a player. That is the worst thing you can do, because what do you do? You shut down their brain, you shut down their thought process, and you basically try to make them a robot. Again, they're not, they're not golfers. You can't just talk to them, you know, for five minutes in between each shot. I mean, they have to play this match on their own out there. And even if you were a coach on the court, like Davis Cup, they still have to play the games. You know, the two games, and then and then come off. Then you, but it just doesn't exist in tennis. Too much is happening too fast. So I feel like letting the players fail, letting them see what works, experiment what doesn't work and kind of giving them their own identity and then wrapping it as you coach them, you wrap it in them discovering for themselves what's working and what's not working and why is that? Why isn't it? And then you get a player who's a gamer out there. You get a player who can kind of think on the fly and feel it. And again, people have strengths for some that comes naturally. And for some, that's something they have to work on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I love that passion. Too. I mean, great advice, and also I can really feel, uh, you know, the amount of passion that you have for coaching, and it's just wonderful to see, uh, you know, a great pr- uh, player and person like you uh, continue to give back to the game. Uh, I do want to transition a bit to uh, obviously the fact that you're just uh, you had one of the biggest serves in the game. I mean, I think you set records at the. Uh, at Wimbledon and the French, it was it uh, for for the serve speeds at like 149, 148. Um, at, at what point did you in your career decide that you wanted to be a servant volleyer? Um, actually, it was late in 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 my career. I mean, well, I didn't serve volley at all in the juniors, you know. So I had a pretty strong <laughs> junior career, and I didn't serve volley at all. But and wow. again, the the problem was uh, with my junior tennis is I did things that worked at a junior level. And I assumed, I thought that they were going to work at, uh, at a professional level, but that's when the game was kind of going through this transition of the courts being slowed up, um, the strings, you know, changing and, and, you know, kind of the ATP and the, and the ITF, um, slowing down the game a little bit, you know, cause for a while there you had finals with, you know, Pete Sampras versus, you know, even Isovich or Kryacek or, you know, all these big servers, you don't see any points. So I think that, you know, in an effort to make tennis more entertaining, things slowed up. So I was playing under the assumption that, you know, my fast, flat hitting ground stroke were going to give me the short balls that I was getting in juniors. And then I could hit those, take those early, come in and finish off points up at net. And then when I got onto the pros, two things happened. One is the guys, you know, were used to my pace. It wasn't special anymore. They'd seen it. And so I wasn't getting the short balls within the first one or two shots that I was used to. So, and, and my shot tolerance was very, very low. So that was the problem. I was making too many errors before I got those weak balls. And then also the, the court slowed down. So I was not quite as effective. You know, I'm not playing on the, the you know, Southern California hard courts that get resurfaced once every 15 years. Now I'm playing on freshly resurfaced courts. Then, you know, they, and they get resurfaced every year. And so now it's a, it's a big, big deal what I'm faced with here. And so, you know, I kind of struggled with that for the first 
six to nine months, I think, on tour. And I talked to my dad. I'm like, I don't think I'm good enough to beat these guys. We're going to have to do something different here. And then so obviously I came to the net a lot off of my groundies, but, um, you know, I'd never served volleyed. And then at the time, Pete Sanford was still dominating. I'm like, well, shoot, we should try to give this a shot. And that's kind of when I started just dedicating my time, my practice time to, to first volleys. You know, I would just basically shadow a serve, sprint in. My dad would feed a ball from the from a return spot, and I would just dive after it and, and just try to volley it to the open court. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's, that's really um, surprising, the fact that, like, I, I didn't expect that you would you didn't really serve in volley as a junior. So that that's incredible that, that you, you know, developed that a lot as a pro. And, uh, you know, in addition to the drill you just mentioned, I mean, what other types of things were you doing to further cement, you know, a serve and volley game in, in training? Um, I would just... I would say the things that I did are not exciting. They're not glamorous. You know, basically I took a lot of pride in, and me and you know Marty Fish talked about this a little bit, is if you are a certain volleyer, the most important volley that you're going to hit in the whole point is that volley that's about two to three feet behind the service line. So basically I just spent a lot of time volleying from there. I didn't worry about the second volley so much because I felt like that was kind of easy. Um, so I just, whether it was me running in, whether it was me starting three quarter court or whether it was me just rallying with somebody and standing two feet behind the service line, three feet behind the service line, that's what I would do. You know, just, just getting really, really skilled at, uh, at, at volleying around that position in the court. The one area that I actually, I tell my students that, that, that want to come in there a little bit, the one area where I actually underperformed big time in up at net was my net coverage and I moved at the net wrong. You know, if you, if you watch Federer cover, cover the net um, or anybody quick and, 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 you know, even, even Djokovic is, is decent in that coverage up there, but Federer is, is by far and above the best. They do it like a return. Like when they make a move, they do a crossover step because what I found out too late is when people are hitting passing shots, you only have time for one step and you either get a choice. You either step across your body or you lunge with the outside leg and the problem with you when you lunge with the outside leg you don't really gain any ground you know what i mean so i actually that was the one area i wish i would have spent a little bit more time uh cleaning up my footwork technique up at net but again i I volleyed pretty well off the first ball that the the second volley tended to be more easy than not taylor thanks a lot for that uh that huge point there and just to get like a little technical so when you say crossover can you walk us through like which foot is going where Uh, let's say if you're you have a forehand volley that you have to get to right so let's say i've let's say i've hit my serve out wide right i've i've hit my 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 first volley to the ad court so i've i've served to the do side i've hit my first volley to the ad side and then that person passes mm-hmm. down the line to my forehand volley so what i would be doing is is i would be taking my left foot so i'm a righty right so my left foot would be going across in front of my my right foot and reaching as far as i can so i have a, a sorry extend my reach by massive amounts of feet. I mean, you know, if you, you know, get out on the court and you mess around with that, take one step with your outside foot and you're only, you're not going to gain much ground at all. But as soon as you cross over, you've covered most of the court. Yeah. Great stuff, Taylor. I was trying to do that with my earphones in, but yeah, I can feel it. <laughs> Didn't want to rip it off my ears. Um, but uh, appreciate that. And also, you know, with, with the first volley. So, I mean, when you're practicing the first volley, I mean, what is your your main objective w- with them? 
So we got two scenarios here, and this is where, you know, server volume is good, server volume is really bad. Um, what I came to later in my career was I actually hated servant balling down the tee. I hated it very, very much. And the reason for that is if they do hit a, I mean, look, if they hit a bad return or they miss the return, who cares? You know, it, it's all the same. Um, but if they hit a decent return and I've served down the tee, I've actually done them a favor and I've brought them into the middle of the court, which is where they want to be. That's where they want to be for this passing shot. And so where am I going to hit this first volley now? I don't have anywhere good to hit it. And, and even if I hit a perfect volley, they're going to have a chance at a passing shot. So I don't like the idea of having to play perfect tennis and then still having a good look at, at winning the point on me. So if you serve volley down the tee, I don't know, hopefully the opponent has a weaker passing shot side or a side you can read better. If that's not the case, if they pass well off both sides, then you're talking about drop volleys, and that's not easy off of a first volley. You know, trying to keep that thing low and short so they have to run forward with an open racket face, it's just not great. You know, now serving volleying out wide, it's interesting. If we talk about a right-hander on the deuce side, it's a no-brainer, and I actually can't believe more players don't use that play um, because I just feel like it's it's actually like a certainty. If you hit a good serve out wide i mean they're way off of the court you're coming in so you're taking all this time away from them to recover to the center all you have to do is get your racket on the ball and poke it to the open court and that point should be yours the vast majority of the time i mean i, I just think that play is a, you know a certainty serving and volleying out wide on the ad side for a righty not quite as good you know because you don't have that spin working with you to, to pull them out wide just doesn't work out quite as well, um, but certainly better, in my opinion, than serving the balling down the tee. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know about, you know, I think the slice serve on the deuce side is, is super effective, and I don't know if maybe it's like they think that, oh, I'm serving into the forehand, but it's actually a really pretty difficult to hit a, a wide forehand return uh, back in a lot of cases, and I think even at the amateur level, a lot of returners are not really moving forward and lateral, or yeah, forward and lateral, they're moving mostly lateral, so, so it's a really, really effective serve. Uh, appreciate that. Um, and as far as, um, you know, so another scenario for you is like, you know, once you get that first volley back and, and assuming that the opponent has time, like a couple seconds to set up for a pass, what, uh, what factors are you considering in those, in those like two seconds, um, in figuring out like what, which side should you cover? Um, you, you, you have a few different options here. One, you just play the percentages, right? You just... You cover as much court as you can with that one step. Now, you can't cover everything. That's just the bottom line. So if you give the passing guy and he's skilled time on that side, you're, you're in trouble. You know, that, that's, that's the bottom line. You know, you're just going to either have to get lucky or hope they make a mistake, something, like, you know, something along those lines. So that's one theory. Just play the, the angles, the geometry of that passing shot and just, you know, you know that's why, like, if, if, I, if I approach to the ad side, right, I'm, I'm approaching, I'm coming, I'm, I'm, my court position, I'm off on that same side. You kind of, you know, that old saying, you follow the ball, and it is true. And realistically, you, you can cut off the angle cross court better that way, right? And, and you want to take away that straight ball down the line, right? So, so that, that's how you cover the most court. The other way you play it is you know your, your, your uh, people's tendencies. I remember, you know, I was playing a guy won't say his name, but everybody said he had his forehand passing shot cross court. So, boom, yeah, that, that's cheating. You know what I mean? I, and I just, I won so many points 
just, just sitting on it. You know what I mean? I wasn't even covering it, but I was just kind of, you know, just waiting for it, if that makes sense. So that, that's the other way. It's just know your opponent's tendencies. I played another guy who every time he hit a return, he would pull the return. So if it was, he's a righty, if it was on the do side, he'd hit his forehand cross court and he'd pull his mm. backhand inside in and, you know, vice versa on the ad side, he would pull his forehand return inside in and then his backhand return would go cross court. Mm. So that's cheating. You know what I mean? If you know something like that against your opponent, that's a big deal. That's a huge deal. And the last way to, to kind of cover the net is a little bit what, uh, I mean, Federer does it really well sometimes, but the best person at it was Rafter. Rafter would actually bait you into your favorite passing shots or, or he would leave something open intentionally. So he'd make it look like there was a lot of room there. And then he would just try to get you to, to, to hit the passing shot there. And he'd be anticipating that big explosive crossover step and cut it off, you know? Um, so those are the kind of the three theories, concepts that I've seen work consistently when, when coming to the net. Love that. I really appreciate that too. It's really gold there. And, uh, also just a, a technical tip. I think, you know, in general, obviously, especially for amateur players, you know, there's certain, uh, technical inefficiencies on the volleys and, and, you know, every stroke, but I mean, are there any particular technical pieces of advice that maybe you find yourself telling your students, uh, fairly often that you think would be helpful on the volley side? Yeah. Yeah, there's definitely a handful. I mean, one is the obvious one, and it's a must. I've never seen a good volleyer use a lot of wrist on their volleys. So that's number one. You got to grip the grip the handle strong, keep your wrist strong. And the reason for that is, is why do we want we want wrist in certain situations on a serve? Man, we want as much as we can get on on you know big aggressive ground strokes, forehand, backhand. Yeah, we want a ton of wrist because that generates easy, cheap racketed speed. You know, and, and in those situations, we're generating racket hit speed to create topspin. Well, we don't have that luxury at the net. And, and we're, we're at the net. We're, we're close to the, uh, the baseline on the other side. So, you know, racket hit speed isn't really an asset at the net. So you want to take that away. So lock up the wrist. That's number one. Number two, I would say that I see a lot is people try to help the spin on the volley. The spin is already taken care of by the fact that your, your racket face is open or the bottom edge is coming first. So you pretty much, after that, just, just hit through the ball. You know what I mean? And, and you don't try to help put the spin on there. It's already taken care of. Um, number three kind of goes in, in the same breath as that is <clears throat> you want a very flat stroke with a volley. You know, you, and to do that, you got to see where the ball is going and you got to set the racket, the, the strings, on the same level, the same height as the ball. If you set the strings lower than the ball, well, you're going to have to come up to it, and that should generate topspin. That's no good. And if you set the strings high above the ball, you're going to have to come down on it, and that's going to create too much of a chopping thing and too much spin or too much pop on that ball. So wherever, whatever height that ball is coming at you, that's where you want to get the strings as soon as possible, and then you're, then you're set up in a good position to just come straight through that point of contact and there is a little bit of a downward motion but not much great stuff taylor yeah i mean uh, you know one big mistake i used to make was i used to keep my wrist uh, cocked a bit upwards uh i don't know what maybe 45 degrees or something like that for whatever reason so i was wondering you know why was i having so much trouble with low balls and you know it's it's that advice you said yeah. there to keep it at the same level um exactly yeah yeah, yeah appreciate that taylor um so you know, you, you mentioned uh, your father, Phil. He's actually 
known as, as a serve doctor. Uh, and I was, and he's coached a lot of great players. And I was wondering, uh, you know, whether it was growing up or whether when it was on tour, what's one piece of advice that really stuck with you that your father has told you about the game? About, about the game in general? Um, that's tough. It, it, it I mean, about anything, you know, he was my coach for so one piece of advice. I would say this. Here's what I would say. And again, it gets back to kind of my upbringing <laughs> is yeah. uh, relentless. You know, you, you, you have to be relentless. You're going to you're going to be faced with so much failure as a tennis player. It's absolutely staggering and it's all on you. And if you don't have that attitude that uh, mindset of just being relentless and you just keep coming no matter what, obviously you don't want to be brain dead, but you just, you, you're, you're persistent. I mean, Federer, like th- these two stats blow my mind about, about failure. When Federer had like the greatest four years that tennis has ever seen, you know, when he, when he first started dominating tennis, um, he only won 52% of those points over those four years. Like if you, if you would ask me without me knowing these stats, I would have said, oh, he's winning, you know, 60% of those points. You know, just uh, he's winning 52, barely over half. You know what I mean? And when Djokovic had that one career year where it was the best year, single year that tennis ever seen, he won 53.5% of the points. You know, the, the difference between success and failure is so fine in any professional sport. But I would say a lot in tennis is it's all on you, just like other individual sports. And it's me versus you. There's also this direct confrontational thing. It's almost like prize fighting. It's almost like UFC. You know what I mean? It's just like, I'm going against you. Who's better today? And it's all on me. And it's just, it's tough. It's it's really tough. And if you don't have that spirit of, you know what? Nothing's stopping me. Nothing's going to hold me down. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to work through it. I'm going to do what it takes. It's, it's, it's hard. You know, you're going to get beaten around. For sure, Taylor. And you say relentlessness, and, and that's one of the huge keys. But there, I mean, even for probably an athlete like you, and you know, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, of course, but I'm sure there were days where you still felt like, you know, maybe I, I really want to take a break today. Oh, yeah. I'm really tired. So I was wondering, yeah, and so I was wondering, you know, in those days, you know, what, what types of, I don't know, strategies or things that, that you thought about or things that you implemented to help you get through those types of situations? Yeah, and, and again, don't get me wrong. I don't think you have to go out there every day and just bust it out. I mean, if you are strategically taking a rest, if you've been trying to push through some type of an emotional gap, maybe you need a couple of days off. Maybe you need a week off. You know what I mean? Because I've seen it so many times people take a step back and then they, they come out, they come back stronger. Now, if you're taking a step back to avoid a situation, then that does, that's not going to work. You know, because that situation is going to pop up again and again. I can't speak for everybody. You know, obviously what, what motivates you? What motivates me? What motivates Better. I don't know. You know what I mean? But, but it's all different for everybody. But what motivated me is I wanted to win slams. I mean, I couldn't sleep. Like if you ask, if you ask my wife, Jenny, you know, she was with me out on the tour. I couldn't sleep some nights because I just was up thinking about my game. What is stopping me from winning grand slams and how am I going to fix it? And when I was on the plane ride, it, it was literally my ritual. I'd be like, why am I not winning grand slams? What am I going to do about it? You know, and that was, was kind of what motivated me. And I, I didn't really have too much of an issue to get up and practice because I felt like practice was the key to me winning those grand slams. That's, that's what I, that's what I believe. And I just wanted to make sure that whatever I was doing on the practice court 
was taking me towards winning those grand slams. I didn't want to be wasting my time out there. Now, if I didn't have an answer, if I didn't have a strong feeling of, of what was going to take me in that direction, you better believe I'd be lost. You know, you better believe that I would be unmotivated and not want to go out there. But I thought about it so much and I asked so many people. I, I wanted so many opinions, not that I agreed with any of them or, or a lot of them, but I just wanted to make sure that I was looking at my game unemotionally and from every angle possible. Gotcha, Taylor. Yeah, that's 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 passion right there, and uh, really guided you, and you had a you know tunnel vision, and uh, that, that that's fantastic. Uh, you know, it, it's a time of uh, you know goals. Although they say that uh, you know it's better to focus on systems and goals. Uh, so I was wondering if you have any pieces of advice, given that it's you know New Year's and people will set their goals, and then about eighty percent of them will stop pursuing them you know in two weeks but uh, i was wondering yeah if you have any any advice about about you know maybe being able to actually stick to those goals and and uh persevere you know i tell you what i'm horrible i'm actually horrible at goals outside of the tennis court like you know i i set goals for getting fitter and, and doing this and doing that and i just i'm bad so i can't really speak to goals off the tennis court on the tennis court i was really good and i wish i could translate that to my life a little bit better but it just doesn't seem to happen but i'll tell you what i did so the biggest goal experience that i had in my career was uh, when i had my back surgeries and then you know that was that was a year-long process i was in bed and all of a sudden the doctor said oh you know it healed up really well i think you should try to play tennis again like when i had those surgeries i thought i was done you know and so boom now all of a sudden i've been out of the game for so long i've been in bed for a year straight how am I going to get back to this? And I was working with uh, Trevor Molwad at uh, down in Florida, and he really taught me the power of achieving goals. Okay, so whatever you do, make sure it's easy and it's achievable. Nothing is going to be more demoralizing than not achieving your goal. So what I mean by that is for me, you know, my first goal to get back on the tennis court was just to walk down the street and back uh, without stopping because in, in the beginning I couldn't do that. You know, that's a small goal, and if you know, I know I can achieve that if I just spend a few few days doing it. So you achieve that, and, and there's this kind of even if it's a dumb little goal, there's this thing. You know, you know these uh, these modern games you play, kind of like uh, I don't know, I don't know whatever these games are, but they give you these little quests, these little objectives within a level, and they can be meaningless and stupid, but just that achieving that little objective encourages you to keep going. It's like a little pat on the back type of thing. So I would say with goals, make them very small and make them very achievable. Yeah, that is really great advice, Taylor. Uh, I mean, I I think that uh, a lot of people, you know, first off, they'll set uh, these really high goals, like oh, I want to start working out, you know, an hour a day for, or like four, you exactly. know, and, and you know, you might as well just set the goal of like I'm going to work out like ten minutes uh, a day for three days, and then you know, you get get that going, and then you just build up from there. Uh, and, exactly. You know, and also, I know there's a, a lot of people who you know they set a goal to lose a hundred pounds, and even though they've lost like seven or eight pounds in a couple of weeks, they think of like the end, you know, how much they have left, rather than appreciating how much how far they've come so um but yeah i mean uh, that's that's great advice there um taylor 
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And, uh, you know, you gave us some amazing advice on the volleys, so I, I can't help but ask you <laughs> about the serve. And this is kind of a silly, maybe a silly question, but Taylor, what is the secret to hitting a 149-mile-per-hour serve? <laughs> um, well, I think there's a lot I think there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't know if, if the, the term kinetic chain is, is correct, but it, it's more or less correct. You know what I mean? You need to be firing your body parts in the right order. I would say the most, and this is where I will disagree with, with uh, kind of the common thought is I don't think the legs are a huge deal for increasing speed. You know, now for creating spin on the ball, they are a massive deal. Um, But for creating speed, not so much the shoulder turn, like think about like a baseball pitcher, you know, when, when they've got a runner on first and their, their back is, is to first base, they don't have the luxury of that big shoulder turn. You know what I mean? So they just do a little quick one. And because of that, the quality of the pitches deteriorate, right? When, the, when there's no runners on and he doesn't have to worry about somebody stealing the base, you see this huge, massive shoulder turn. Why is that? They're loading up for that power. So I would say that's a big one. Another power killer that I see is when people, um, they get in their trophy position right before they're about to explode and the, the energy on their elbow is already uh, spent. Uh, and what I mean by that is, is the hand is already laid back on the wrong side of the elbow. Like if you, if you, you know, think about having your palm down and then shooting that elbow forward and that starts that throwing motion, it's more, you know, throwing and hitting a serve is more about the elbow coming, you know, forward in the throw or up and forward for a serve rather than the hand going backwards. You can't have the hand going backwards. It actually kind of stays in the same area as the elbow comes forward. So that one is a big one that I see all the time. People bring the hand backwards, and it just kills the elbow's whippiness. The other thing mm-hmm. is, you know, the wrist snap. Um, everybody snaps their wrist. You know, you, you can slow-mo everybody. It's like a forehand. You know, everybody snaps their wrist. The timing of when that wrist snap happens, though, is everything. So if it's happening during contact or after contact, you're losing out on a ton of racket at speed. It's actually how you have to start that wrist snap before contact even happens. Um, one fun thing I do with the kids, I have them, you know, swing and serve in the air without hitting a, hitting a ball. And I ask them to swing as fast as they can so I can hear the strings, make the strings real loud, you know, let's hear them whoosh through the air. And then after they're swinging hard, I say, okay, so where – and this is cool. You can do this. You can do this yourself. Where in the air are they the loudest? And you can definitely hear where they are. And most of the time, it's like eye level in front of them, straight in front of them. I'm like, well, that's funny. That's not where you want them to be fast. You want the strings to be fast above your head. 
you know, because that's where contact is. And so, you know, th- that's kind of one little trick to, to feel how early that wrist snap has to happen. So if you get a good shoulder turn, if you get that elbow firing in pretty fast and, and the, the wrist snapping on time, I mean, you're on your way to hitting a real, real big serve. Um, yeah, so I, I think those are the three, the three biggest ones for sure. Awesome. Thank you for that, Taylor. Uh, great tips there. I had a, uh, or I have a, an audience question from Laith who, who asked, and I, I know you just gave us some drills, but he asked, what exercises did you do to increase your serve speed? Um, I think it's personality. A lot of it's personality. You know, I, I can remember when I started playing tennis, my dad was <clears throat> uh, working with Michael Chang, mm-hmm. and all I wanted to do was hit my serve harder than Michael Chang. You know, I'm like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm 10, 11 years old, so I didn't care if it hit the back fence. You know, it was it was going faster, and that's all that matters. I mean, another example of that was, is is Nadal's forehand. You know, I can remember watching Nadal practice when he was younger. He was hitting his forehand so big it was scary. I'd say fifty percent went in the back fence on the fly. You know, so it's just I think just going. If you want to generate some racket head speed, go out there, practice some serves, and don't try to hit them in. You know, that that's the, that's the worst thing you could do if you're you're trying to develop speed because we're trying to push past what your body can handle so just be reckless hit them big hit them fast and obviously obviously warm up don't hurt yourself but that's how you build speed is you 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 overclock it you overtrain it you know i mean you go a little bit past what you can handle and then you do that enough and those miles per hour start start creeping up yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean uh obviously a lot of players you know their their goal is to just get it in and there's no way that you're gonna generate much much pace if you're trying to do that um at any point were you also doing like any sort of like gym exercises with the intent to increase your serve speed was that ever a thing for you no um the only thing that i did is when i was younger i had some rotator cuff issues that kept me out for a little bit Mm. so i was pretty good about doing bands for my shoulder um quite a bit uh, but other than that, I mean, everything, you know, a lot of power in tennis, cause you can see some big weightlifters out there, not really hit the ball super hard. Right. And then, then you can see someone like mm-hmm. Federer, who's not really a big guy. I mean, he's six, two and he's 175 pounds and he can hit his forehand insanely hard. You know, it's huge. So a lot of power and same thing in golf, right? A lot, cause we have a tool, a lot of power is generated from the whippiness and the elasticity. So Everything that I did um, to get stronger and bigger was all about my legs, lower body. Upper body was just trying to stay injury-free. Got it, Taylor. And, and so for the legs, I'm just kind of curious about your um, your fitness routine, you know, like in the off-season. I mean, because a lot of – I think a lot of coaches, they, they say that, you know, you're supposed to do like more general like strength exercises like in the off-season and then like do your more like tennis-specific uh, exercises during the season. So is that kind of the script that you followed as well or was did you do a different uh, – have a different approach? I would just say whenever you have time to train, you train hard, you know, because when you're – I mean, you spend a lot of time out on the road. You're not going to go train hard when you're out trying to be fresh for the next match, you know, and you just, mm-hmm. so I would say that like, if you're back for, and the, and the best time to train, honestly, if you're, if you are out on the right, is right after you lose. I mean, if you go and you lose first or second round, well, you actually have some time before your next match. So that day you lose or that next day after you lose, that's the best time to train hard. And what I mean by training hard is training heavy. Um, you know, the, the way to build muscle, the way to build explosiveness is to 
be a, a sprinter. You know, think about uh, a marathon runner and, and their their body requirements. Say, you know, they're they're cruising along, and they're not really these huge muscly people, right? Think about Usain Bolt. On the other hand, I mean, he is just so powerful, so explosive. So it doesn't really matter whether you're running sandhills. I've done those. Whether you're doing box jumps, done those. I mean, any every tennis player's done everything under the sun. Um, it doesn't matter if you're lifting weights. If you want to build strength and you want to build explosiveness and mass, you've got to do explosive stuff. I mean, you got to do heavy, really exerting stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, Taylor. And uh, it's always interesting for me to to kind of w- have a player, a professional player, walk through like their normal normal routine uh, during uh, their playing days. I was wondering if maybe you could walk us through a typical day of of practice and training. You know, when you weren't actually at a tournament. Oh, okay. Not at a tournament. Um, I tried a bunch of different stuff, but I would say, you know, not if I'm not at a tournament because court time at a tournament is a joke. Like you're literally hitting mm-hmm. 45 minutes twice a day. That's all you get. You know, you don't get much court time. Um, but mm-hmm. if I'm at home, the, what I, what I did was is I split up my two practices. One was for, for my holding games. I would, I would dedicate two, you know, two, two and a half hours to, you know, holding, you know, serving and holding those games, holding those points. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, I would serve first to forties, my serve only to, to each spot on the court. So, you know, wide on the deuce, T deuce, T add, wide add. And I would just serve, you know, first to 40 points against somebody. They'd know where I was going. And it's just to kind of get those that build that skill, get that endurance up, get those reps in for, for being able to do it over and over and over. And uh, just so I was less bad each time. Right. Um, and that would generally take about two hours or more. I would do some type of holding drill, you know, within, and for me, that was volleying. And then I'd go get a quick lunch. Um, and then in the afternoon, I would do two hours of some type of breaking drill. You know what I mean? To do groundies, returning, just, just getting run around the court, um, scrapping, digging. And, and just, you know, I, I like to split up my practice that way. Yeah, and, and I was at an academy for a little while when I got right before I got hurt, and I, I did a little bit differently there. Um, I would use the points, uh, you know, I'd, I'd play sets against some younger players, some younger good juniors, and I would uh, just work on the things within that. I, again, like I said, I don't think there's a right or a wrong way to do it. That's just the way I did it, and I always played five sets. You know, I just wanted to make sure that I was fit enough to get through five sets. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of what I did when I wasn't at tournaments. Awesome, Taylor. And then as far as like, uh, you know, conditioning or strength training, I mean, how many days a week usually did you do that? I mean, five, six, you know, five, six days a week. And it's not the same thing every day. You mix it up. And I've had mixed results, you know, with, with all that stuff. You know, well, here's, here's, here's the interesting thing about that is if you are trying to be a professional athlete, even a, even a you know, high-level Division One college athlete, you are not trying to be a better overall athlete you are a highly specialized athlete. So you're trying to be a better tennis athlete. And that was one of the things that I learned, unfortunately, the hard way um, is, you know, I was doing all this stuff in the gym, you know, from head to, you know, from my, my head to my toes. And I found after like six months of doing it, nine months of doing it, my performance on the court was actually starting to deteriorate. And I, and I just was, you know, talking to the training team that was, we were kind of going through and they're like, well, look at all of your stats in the gym. They're all getting better and better and better. And, and that's when they said, said, you're just such a better overall athlete now 
than you were when you started nine months ago. And that's when it hit me. And I said, you know what, you're exactly right. I am a better overall athlete. I don't think anybody can argue with that, but I'm really trying to specialize here. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to be a better overall. I'm trying to be a better tennis athlete. And that is very specific. That means my arms need to be loose and whippy. That means my legs need to be really explosive. And I need to be able to, you know, hit this one step really fast, really hard and recover and do it again. How many times a point, you know, four or five times a point, not many. And I need to be able to recover in 15 seconds and do it again. I need to be able to do that for two and three hours. So I, there, there's some very specific things. And if you find yourself training differently than to get that to happen, again, you better have some good reasons for that. It better be, to, oh, I'm recovering, I'm flushing out my legs, or I'm getting back from injury. So just, just whatever you do, if you want to be a good tennis athlete, mimic tennis. Yeah, I think there's a big misunderstanding about uh, among tennis players as to what type of workouts they should actually be doing to help themselves. And so I imagine that, you, you know, your your numbers that were going up were like maybe your squat and deadlift and bench press. Is that the type of numbers they were talking about? Yeah, no, I mean, look, the squat numbers are great. Deadlift numbers, my my track times, you know, running like these, these you know, laps around the tracks, uh, my endurance, my my mile times, all this sort of stuff. How can you run a mile continuously on a tennis court? You don't. <laughs> yeah, you know, no. it's it, it's very hurt. Yeah. The movement is very herky jerky. You know, you you had the, like the crossover step that we talked about on the volley. If you want to be good at one movement, be good at that. Make that the most explosive mm-hmm. thing you can do. You cover half the court or more in that one step. You know, so so th- that's kind of the movements that I wasn't really doing. Uh, you know, that that I probably should have been. Yeah. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense, Taylor. Uh, I want to ask you some questions about, uh, well, some more questions about the tour. Um, well, actually, let's go to the, the you know, the, the big injury phase, you know, well, I guess after you had the surgery. I mean, can you talk about, like, how difficult that was to uh, to rehab? I mean, you know, like, uh, obviously, Andy Murray's uh, documentary came out, and I'm, I'm sure you probably, like, empathize with, with some of that. But how, how difficult was the rehab, and what types of things were you doing? Um, yeah, I, the, the rehab for me, I, I'll say this. There's not much I could do um, for my back. It was just, you know, once the surgery was done, it was a fusion, it was either the bone and, and the titanium was going to hold or it wasn't going to hold, that type of thing. Now, getting my core strong, all that sort of stuff, fine. But, you know, working out the core, it's, it's, it's not the toughest thing to do. You know what I mean? It's just it's tedious. It's monotonous. Like I remember laying on a table just for hours a day with this little uh, air bladder under my back, and I had to keep the needle on the air, on the air pressure, the air pressure needle from moving while I lift and lower my legs, you know, and it's just to train these tiny little muscles in the mat, in the back. So they get stronger. You know, it's not excruciating work. What I actually found was the toughest part was just my overall fitness had just absolutely gone, just totally gone from spending a year laying down in bed. Um, it was brutal. Like I remember I was pretty, resilient practicing. I could go for some long practices. Like I said, you know, practicing five sets in a row for me, you know, day in, day out, it's kind of what I did. I didn't mind doing it. You know, it was, I enjoyed it. Um, but when I came back, I was done after 45 minutes on the court, I couldn't last anymore. So that emotionally and physically was really, really tough. And it, I, I tried a whole bunch of different ways to up my time on the court. And I just really found that, man, being out that long and being that inactive 
it was hard to, to overcome. Like really, really I, I never fully did to be honest with you. Even when I came back and I, and I, you know, got back to like 75 in the world, I was, I was not in great shape. I mean, I was still kind of trying to get in shape as I was coming back. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a tough road, but, uh, you know, you still had some good results after that. Uh, and uh, so, so Matt actually uh, asked this question: um, What would you do differently uh, today, perhaps, to protect yourself uh, from injuries? Injuries are an interesting thing to me. You know, obviously, you know my my injury, my big one was that I had a you know I, I broke uh, the the you know well it's called the pars bone. It was a bilateral both sides in in the, in the vertebrae. They're actually broken, and there's you know, not much that could do about that. I mean, I remember, you know, when I was seeing the doctors, when I started to have, you know, back problems, back aches, uh, they said, oh, just do more core, do more core. I was doing core till I was blue in the face and it, and it still ended up giving out on me. So injuries happen. Um, some people are injury prone. I mean, you know, one of, one of the things that I think about all the time is I'm not the smallest guy. You know, you talk about me and Federer, we're about the same, same height. I mean, when I was, when I was my fittest on tour, I was under 7% body fat and I weighed 217 pounds. I mean, I'm giving away over 40 pounds to, to a guy my same size. Um, so for me, just fighting that, that body type a little bit was a, was a little rough. You know, that, that I, I'm carrying around a lot of weight in a, you know, really light person, explosive moving sport. You know, now the guys that weigh 200 plus pounds, they're 6'6". Six, six you know, six, eight. So I would say, I would say making sure that your, your body can handle the stress, especially your lower body can handle the stresses of moving, just making sure they're nice and strong. I mean, injuries happen in my experience, mostly because uh, a muscle is either weak or has become weak because of fatigue. So that's kind of the biggest thing as far as like, you know, Andy's hip and, and wrist injuries, there's nothing really you can do about that. I mean, you know, Del Potro's wrist injury, it's just those are those are tough to avoid the hip injuries i mean you can't tell me that andy's hip injury came from him not being strong enough in his legs i mean if you've ever seen that guy's legs they are just insane i mean the doll getting injured how how much of an animal is that guy how much is he taking care of his body i would say you know what i would say okay here's actually what i would say my biggest problem was when i felt a little injury i ignored it I was kind of scared of it and I just wanted it to go away. And eight out of 10 times I was right. You know, eight out of 10 times uh, it would just, you know, work itself out and go away. But two out of 10 times it would end up being a really, really big deal and, uh, and, and, and take up a lot of time to recover from that. So I would say there's a fine line there. You gotta, you gotta play through a lot of pain as a tennis player, but I think at the same time you should be proactive and taking care of every little thing um, that, that you feel that, that doesn't feel right. Yeah. That, that, that's great advice there. And I think just like you mentioned, some players, um, you know, they want to play through it, but you just kind of have to like think and maybe sometimes double checking certain, uh, pains would be better than, than just ignoring, but, uh, great stuff there. Taylor, I was wondering too about your, your fondest memory. I mean, one, you know, I mentioned earlier at the top of the podcast, you know, watching you as a 19 year old going to tie breaks with Pete and, uh, you know, doing, this like huge double uh, knee jump or something when you like barely missed the passing shot is just so much energy there. But uh, do, do you have like a fondest memory or maybe a couple memories on tour? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that, that was pretty cool playing Pete. I mean, at that time I was practicing with him a ton 
in in LA and uh, I went in there feeling like I had a good chance to win and you know I played I played a pretty good match I played a solid match and and uh, you know I served really well and it just couldn't get it done in the he played those breakers just just too good for me so that was a good one I would say I got hurt in this match I twisted my knee but uh, my first ever match at Wimbledon I got to play Agassi on center court and I was up a set in that match and uh, so that was that was a pretty cool experience even though I ended up you know getting hurt a little bit and 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 lost that match I would say the best match I ever played on tour was against Andy Roddick in the finals of Memphis. I just don't know. You know, you just, mm-hmm. you just have those matches, I guess, you know, and, and this, I would say hands down was the best match I had. I beat him like uh, one and four in, in, in just, I don't know. I was seeing the ball so well that I was like chipping and charging his first serve at times. And it was just, uh, I, I'd never played that level before. Coincidentally, I also played the worst match of my career against Andy Roddick at the uh, Australian open. Super embarrassing. We won't talk about that one. Um, exactly. Well, yeah, we won't worry about that one. Uh, the other one was uh, being, you know, winning my first title, beating uh, James Blake in the finals of Newport, Rhode Island. It was, you know, it was awesome. You know, he was supposed to go out there and kind of give me a little beat down, and, and uh, I snuck away with the win. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I've had uh, I've talked to James a couple times uh, for my tennis summits. Our super nice guy, and yeah, I mean, just some yeah. some incredible matches that you've you've had there. Um, maybe a quick question too. I mean, cause I, I noticed that you just hit some like incredible passing shots, uh, against Pete, especially, I remember like one, like backhand slice cross court on the ad side. That was just sick. But I was wondering if maybe you have like one or two tips, like when you're facing a huge server, maybe such as yourself or such as Pete, uh, probably a few of us will actually face that in our careers. But if you have any, uh, returning tips, I would say the biggest thing that, that I come across coaching these kids is, you know, They'll, they'll be, keep getting aced on some spot. Let's just call it out wide on the deuce side. And they won't move over. I'm like, why don't you just move over? Just just take that serve away. They're like, oh, he's going to ace me down the, the tee. Okay, well, then it's too good. But you gotta cross, you got to cross off the first problem. You know what I mean? So I would say anytime you're, you're facing a big server, cross off the first problem. What is that? I don't know. You know, it's not going to be many things. Is, is the pace too much for you? Like, I would say this. My pace was really, really good. My accuracy wasn't awesome, to be honest with you. You know, so when I had players that would just back way up, I didn't like that because now my pace didn't mean as much. You know, but if I had somebody who just was stubborn and standing on the baseline or inside the baseline, I liked that because now I didn't have to worry about my accuracy. I could just hit it hard, and most of the time it doesn't come back or it comes back bad. Um, so I would just say, why is this server giving you a problem? Do something about it. If guess what? If you're playing against somebody who has an answer for everything that you do, like like maybe like an Isner, and Isner's a, he's a problem. That that's 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 the end of story. You know, he's got big pace. So if you stand in close to cut off his angles, you know, in his in his height on the bounce, he's going to start hitting them fast right at you. If you back up, he's going to hit huge angles and get you off the court. You know, that's why he holds serve, you know, 90 whatever percent of the time. It's just, it's, it's a real big problem to handle. And that's why having a great serve is such an advantage because you, it's, you have that first shot that really puts you ahead in the point if you have a good serve. 
Yeah, for sure, Taylor. Appreciate that. And so I want to ask you, obviously, about your transition, uh, you know, to to the Dent Tennis Academy at the Birch Racket and Lawn Club. Uh, that that you, your your wife Jenny, was was a fantastic player in her own right, and uh, Phil opened up. So, I mean, first off, um, you know, what made you decide to? Um, to finally retire in 2010, and then you know your thought process about next steps after that. Um, well, so my wife and I we had our first child in 2010 in January, and I played that whole year, um, you know, trying to get back in shape, trying to get back up to a high ranking, and and you know, and and trying to be dad at the same time. And I really felt like me personally, I couldn't do both. You know, I reflected kind of in, on my last match of the year with, with Jenny. And I just said this whole year, I feel like I'm not really pursuing tennis as hard as I should to get back to where I, I want to get back to. And I'm not spending as much time with you and Declan as that I feel that I should being a dad. And so then, you know, we just, it was pretty a, a short conversation. I mean, it pretty much answered itself for me. And I just said, you know what, I've, I've had a good career. I've had a good run. And maybe it's time to kind of pursue the next uh, stage of my life, you know, and so and be a dad. So that's kind of we pretty much talked about it for five minutes, and and I was retired five minutes later. Wow, awesome! Wow, great! Um, I love the conviction there, and you know, it's just obviously I'm not sure the right word, but you know, touching and very admirable that you know you putting your family first there, uh, and, and then yeah, you know, after you retired, I mean, was was the thought process immediately? you know, I'm definitely going to coach or was it, did you consider a few options? I mean, I know you commentated some as well. So what was the thought process and, and, you know, and how did you come to the decision to eventually coach? Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like tennis is, is where I have my value, you know, and it is, it is what I love. I mean, I I find it, you know, I find it fun. I find it interesting. So, you know, if I wanted to stay in tennis, I really have kind of three options. I feel either I go back out on the road with, uh, or, you know, or either with somebody like a, a young American kid or a young kid and, uh, kind of show them the ropes and, and coach them and hopefully coach them to be great. Or we, you know, we'll work with the kind of the USTA, which is you know, a similar thing, traveling. Um, or I do the commentating and I, and I kind of pursued the commentating briefly until I found out it was kind of the same thing as going back out on the road, uh, with the players. I would have to spend a lot of time, um, you know, on, on the road, you know, calling matches and doing that sort of stuff. And then the last thing that we could, you know, do is in, in my position was, you know, just start an academy. And, uh, and again, my motivation for retiring from tennis was to dedicate more time and, and spend more time with, uh, you know, my family and, and Jenny and I wanted to, you know, have, have multiple kids. So I think that, you know, the question kind of answered itself. It's like, well, the academy is going to keep me home. It's going to keep me close to my family and uh, let me be a dad. Those other ones, it's, it's going to be rough. You know, I'm going to be away from home, you know, way more than half the year, regardless of whatever I do. And so that's why we, we started the academy and, uh, and you know, we continue it now. Yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, it looks to be a, a fantastic academy at the uh, Birch Racket and Lawn Club, and and you're, uh, you know, coaching a wide spectrum of uh, different skilled players there. Um, I was wondering, uh, you know, what is one aspect of coaching? And I'm sure that you know, having a, a dad who's a great coach, that you probably uh, were, you know, somewhat of a natural at least at coaching. But I was wondering if there are one or two aspects of coaching that you've gotten better at as time has gone by. Um. 
I would say motivating the the player. You know, <clears throat> motivating somebody else for me is a is a little foreign. You know, I, just probably talking to me, you can hear. I like I, I'm pretty motivated to to be successful in tennis, and I never had to ask me to, to practice. In fact, well, whatever. I, I there was there's a story where I was sneaking out to practice on the road to, to hit extra serves when uh, the coach I was with at the time didn't want me to. And I, I got found out. So you never had to ask me to practice, never had to ask me to try hard. Um, I would say it was a shock to me that, you know, uh, when we started doing the academy that, you know, we ha- you, you have a, a huge population of kids that are kind of out here going through the motions. And so in the beginning, I didn't quite know how to handle that. Um, it's not really my personality to scream and yell and, and uh, get mad at people. It's, it's more like, well, what are, you, what are you doing out here? Let's, you know, you're going to be out here either way. Let's, let's work hard and let's get better. Um, so just trying, I think that's probably the biggest aspect I've gotten better at is talking to the, the player in a way that motivates them. You know, and, and I'm not great at it, but I, I've gotten better at it. I, 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 that's a skill that I wish that I had in spades because the physical side of tennis, in my opinion, if you ask me how to coach a forehand, a backhand, a one-hand, a backhand, a serve, tactics, I think that is the easiest thing. It's easy as pie. It is so simple, so easy. But to get a kid motivated to suffer through the repetitions necessary to get good at something, that's really, really hard. Yeah. I mean, that's what, mm-hmm. and I think if you could bottle that, if you could bottle that way to motivate somebody through that, I think that's magic. Yeah, that, that definitely is magic. I mean, it all starts obviously in the mind, you know, if you can fix that, you know, that's going to lead to them actually working on the things they need to work on. Um, so that that's great there. And, uh, you know, just kind of give us a summary too, uh, Taylor, of, of the types of programs uh, that you have at your academy. Well, we do two uh, main types of programs. Obviously, we have a summer program. You know, kids come in for camp, you know, week-long camps and stuff like that. Um, but the two ones kind of year-round, we do a full-time program for our pros and our homeschooled kids. And, uh, you know, they spend four hours a day on the court plus fitness. And, you know, tennis is tennis. Again, it's not complicated. We try to teach these kids modern tennis. You know, we, we spend a ton of time doing groundies. Um, you know, tactics and patterns, but really just building the skill for being able to hit a ball in the court with a lot of racket head speed, a lot of topspin, and good margin. I think that's kind of the foundation of tennis. If you can't hit an aggressive ball in the court consistently, I think you're going to struggle you know, in, in the modern game. The only X factor that is if you have an Isner-type serve, and that does exist, but it's not very common. Um, and then we, I, I try to make it fun. I, I, I'm really big on trying to make it as fun as possible in the academy without compromising productivity. I've, I've found in the, the vein of motivating these kids is when I can trick them into having fun in a drill, we get so much more out of the drill than if they think it's just I'm working on my forehand. So I really spend a lot of mental effort trying to make these monotonous drills fun and competitive because when it's fun, the kids try harder. They're going to do it longer. They're going to do it better, more focused, more intense. Um, so that I feel like that's the art of running the academy is how do you make something boring that's super productive, fun for the kids? Because if you can do that, again, that's what I'm talking about. That's that, that's that magic. Now, sometimes I strike out. Sometimes I hit a home run. But I think that's, that's what it has to be. 
Um, the other program we have yeah, for is for after school kids that they kind of go to regular, uh, either private or public school and they come in at four thirty. they go to seven and, and we try to, you know, rush through it in two and a half hours as, as, as quick as we can, as efficient as we can. Um, and those kids, a lot of those kids are, you know, just trying to play on their high school team, you know, the, the JV kids just trying to get a little bit better to, to get a spot on their, their high school team. Um, some of them are, are serious and just, you know, like the school that they're at, but, but a lot of them are, are just, you know, they're trying hard to get on that high school team. Good stuff, Taylor. Um, yeah, thanks for that summary there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, and so, you know, Keller, Texas, can you give us, a, like, geographically, you know, where that is on the map or, you know, where it is in, in relation to other big cities in Texas? Yeah, so it's it's kind of, it's in the DFW area, so Dallas-Fort Worth. It's in, they call it the Golden Triangle. So it's about 30 miles west straight west of Dallas and Dallas is in, you know, North, North central Texas. So 30 miles west of that. And it's about 30 miles North of uh, Fort Worth. So we're kind of sweet smack dab in the middle of two big cities. You know, Dallas is your, your typical modern city and Fort Worth has this really unique uh, cowboy culture. It's pretty fun. Nice. Nice. You ever uh, do the Texas two-step? You dancing a lot these days, uh, Taylor? (laughs) You know what? You don't want to see me out there. I don't know. I, I save everybody the uh, the site. <laughs> All right, I'm uh, hoping there's a YouTube video out there somewhere. I'll search tonight <laughs> after this interview. But um, yeah, I mean, I really, obviously, you know, if you, if you go to the academy, you're gonna be you're going to have people like Taylor and Jenny and Phil uh, out there. I mean, all just uh, incredible players uh, and coaches there. Um, so definitely want to check out. Uh, the Dent Academy for sure. Um, Taylor, uh, one other question, well, from the audience, if you don't mind, from John. I mean, he was wondering about, you know, your perception of the current state of U.S. men's tennis, which I think he listed. I don't know if the numbers are correct, but probably are. He said one in the top 20, eight in the top 100, 14 in the top 200. So what's your perception of the current state of U.S. men's tennis and its implications for player development? Yeah, I mean, if you compare it to, you know, 30, 40 years ago plus, obviously it's, it's you know, it's not as dominant, right? I mean, normally we're seeing two out of the three guys be, be Americans, um, two out of three top guys be Americans. Um, yeah, it's, to, to get it back up there, you know, you got to embrace where the game is and, and who's, who's winning. You know, all the, all the players that are winning get to spend a lot of time on slow courts, you know, and, uh, you know, you get someone like Federer, and, you know, growing up in Europe, half the year they play in, on fast indoors, half the year they play on slow clay courts. So that's that's pretty well-rounded games. That's pretty well-rounded stuff, you know. And, and so I think learning that is important. I feel also just from what I have seen, from what I have seen, and again, I'm not, I'm not the final authority by any means, but I feel like there's not enough focus in American tennis on – trying to be professional because if you are trying to be professional, you will watch those professionals and you will emulate and imitate those professionals and uh, do what they do. I feel like there's a lot of motivation to make it to college tennis. And if you watch college tennis, it looks a lot different than uh, if you turn on the TV and, and watch, you know, Djokovic and Federer and Nadal play. I think that's a big part of it is, is just what, are we investing? What are you as a player investing your time being good at? If you're investing your time at being a safe tennis player, you're, you know, then, then college is going to be, you know, kind of the, the, 
the goal for that. I mean, if, if you're like those guys, those guys are hitting the ball so hard. They're, my dad just spent uh, my dad just spent two weeks in Dubai. So Miramar Kecmanovic, he's the uh, young Serbian kid. He's like 69 in the world, 59 in the world, something like that. He wanted my dad to look at his serve. So my dad went over to Dubai uh, to help him with the serve, and he's training with. Karen Hatchinoff, he's training, you know, alongside Sitsipas. Federer was there. Um, and, and dad just is saying that, that it's just, you know, what it was when I was playing against Federer and Nadal and Djokovic. These guys are hitting the ball huge. They're, 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 he said Sitsipas' racket hit speed on his forehand, he said it, it might be the biggest one out there now. You know, he just said these guys are swinging so fast. And that's not what you see, you know, in junior tennis. You don't see, there's just, it feels like there's too much at stake with each win and each loss. It's not like we're focused on the bigger picture. I mean, I know I had that focus and it took pressure off of me for the juniors. I wanted to play professional tennis since I started playing tennis, you know, and so I was always doing what Boris Becker was doing. I was always doing what Pete Sampras was doing or Pat Rafter was doing. I was not doing what the successful juniors were doing because that was not my goal. You know, and then they, they're very, you know, contrasted. And then that's kind of where you know, even Jenny said, I had a, a different feeling about me and the juniors. You know, she grew up playing juniors kind of alongside me. It's just like, you know, I just went about it differently. And so that's all I would say. It's just like whoever you're emulating out there, make sure – that that is in line with your goal. If your goal is to play professional tennis and get be that one person extra inside the top twenty, well, play like those guys in the top twenty. You know, do that. If if your goal is to be a good sixteen-year-old, then fine, play like those good sixteen-year-olds. But you're gonna get different uh, end results. Gotcha, Taylor. And it's possible when some people hear this, they might misconstrue and think like, oh well it might be too risky to like play just to be a pro and skip college, but you're not saying that, right? Like you're, you're basically saying like just game wise, you know, develop yeah. it as if you were, you know, for the pros, but you can obviously still go to college if you want. And, and just as long as you're playing. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think absolutely. I think, excuse me. I think, you know, you, you use the college thing as, as like the best insurance policy ever. You know, you go there and you, you know, it's like, with, like with my son. So I, my, my son is seven years old, right? And he's interested in tennis. So he's playing tennis. My older son plays golf. Anyway, and I'm telling him, you know, I'm showing him video. He wants to hit a one-handed backhand. So I'm showing him videos of Gasquet. I'm like, fine, if you want to hit a one-handed backhand, it better look like this. You make it look like Gasquet. So he's on YouTube watching slow motion of, of Gasquet's backhand. And he likes Dominic Team. He likes his forehand. So I'm like, fine, make it look like that. You know what I mean? And so my th- I would never do anything um, with my son that I thought was going to hurt him in the long run. I feel like I am trying to push him to play the way the pros do. And guess what? He's going to get better doing that. I mean, that it is, it is a very effective style of tennis. And if he's not good enough to play pro, well, then fine. Then, then, then we do college. But I think that if you set the goal for college tennis, <clears throat> I feel like it – it limits the game style a little bit, but I am by no means you have to turn pro out of high school. By no means like that. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, yes, but in today's game, and the reason why I say 20, 30 years ago is because people were retiring when they're 32. So if you go spend a few years at college, um, that's a lot of your, your professional tennis career right there. Now you see guys who are playing competitive tennis at the highest levels, and they're almost 40 years old. 
So I think that's a game changer and it opens up the opportunity to confidently yeah, go to college. Yeah, great advice, Sir Taylor. I mean, first off, though, why aren't you showing your son your one-handed uh, backhand? You know, I think you should be looking at your 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 strokes there. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. So when I was coming back from my back surgeries, um, the guy who was helping with my goals and motivating me, um, he created these highlight discs. Uh, you know, he got a whole bunch of matches that I played against some really good players, and they're just highlight discs. That's what they are. They're on DVDs. And, and my wife, Jenny, she kept them. And uh, so my son stumbled across them one day, and they watch it. Oh, watch that. So they think I'm the greatest tennis player that's ever existed. I've never <laughs> lost a point. You know, they've never seen me lose a point. Smart. And so he was the reason, or those discs were the reason why he wanted to hit the one-hander. I was like, Daddy hits a one-hander. I'm going to hit a one-hander. And I'm like, don't do that. You know, don't do that. You're too young to do that. And as soon as I say that, of course, he's like, no, 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 I'm doing it. You know. Uh, well, you know what? You've given me a brilliant idea to make a highlight video of myself for my future kids. I like it. I like it. I appreciate that, Taylor. I'm, I'm going to do it. Uh, so, Taylor, you know, d just a couple more questions for you. I hope these are fun for you. And, and again, I mean, this has been uh, an incredible conversation. I, I can't say enough about your uh, passion for the sport and also just how much fun this has been. But question for you here is, if you could write anything on a billboard that would be posted up in the most highly trafficked area near your hometown... Uh, what would you want it to say? And it can be, it could say, you know, stuff about like anything you want. Anything I want. That's right. Maybe except uh, expletives. We might want to leave that out if you. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do expletives. <laughs> I wouldn't do expletives. <laughs> um, I guess, you know, so, well, <clears throat> the biggest passion right now that my wife and I have is, is uh, we're, we're Christians. And so. It would obviously uh, be along those lines. Something of, of you know, if, if you if you haven't explored that, I would highly encourage you to explore that. You know, I was actually an atheist at one stage and uh, became a Christian because of of you know Jenny, and it's definitely changed how I how I you know see life and and how how I uh, battle through the struggles. You know, the struggles have meaning now, whereas before it was just unlucky it was just this or just that so i would just that's what i would put something up there that says something like that look if you never explored it before just take a peek you'll be surprised very cool very cool taylor appreciate that and uh another one for you if you could give 20 year old taylor dent advice what would you tell him 20 year old taylor dent advice he wouldn't take it he's stubborn <laughs> assuming he did <laughs> yeah that he would <laughs> assuming he would i'd say you know what i would say I would say use as much wrist as you can on your forehand and stop serving the line so much. Got it. Cool, cool. And uh, what are three books that you would gift to your students to help them become better tennis players? Man, <clears throat> um, I actually read uh, this uh, Golf is Not a Game of Perfect. I, I know it's a golf book. I think it applies to tennis. Huge, huge so. I mean, uh, unbelievable. Um, outliers? right? About how much struggle it takes to succeed and how many hours of investment it takes to, to succeed. I think, I know there's more, um, sub subjects to that book than, than just that, but I think that's a big point that hits home. Um, what other book would I say? Hmm, man, I don't know. I don't know. I guess I haven't read it, but based on the conversation I had with, uh, my uh, my tennis parent out here, the inner game of tennis, started off 
sounding like, like, you know, like a lot of what we preach out on the tennis court. It's like, look, winning is not the most important thing, especially in practice. You know, improving is. What do you, what do you want to play like? Do you know, go out and play like that. Excellent. Appreciate those uh, those excellent suggestions. And yeah, I'll just sneak in uh, one I've, I'm rereading now is uh, Atomic Habits, which is really fantastic and shows, you know, basically that you need to improve, you know, even 1% a day and you're going to eventually yeah. have a huge breakthrough. And, and there's this really uh, great quote that uh, that James Clear, the author, put in there. And it was basically that a stone cutter, they basically hit the uh, stone, you know, a hundred times and you don't see any sort of crack. And then on the hundred first strike, it happens. Yeah. And, and the quote is basically that, you know, the, the stone cutter knows that it was the hundred blows before that, that really caused the uh, breakthrough. So, uh, yeah. So love that one. That's right. Yeah. No, there was a similar book. There was a similar book uh, with that title. I think it was called the power of 1%. And it was that kind of concept. It was just, look, just try that 1% more each day than your running mate, right? And that 1% adds up over time to be this, you know, huge yeah, gap exactly, in, in exactly level awesome. and skill. Taylor, uh, where can we connect with you online or in person? Online? I don't, you know, I leave the online stuff to Jenny. With with me in person, you know, I'm out here at, uh, at the Dent Tennis Academy every day. You know, that's kind of what... Uh, what I do is what my passion is. And, and so if you ever want to stare at my ugly face, this is where I'll be. <laughs> I beg to differ, sir, <laughs> uh, about the ugly face part. Um, so, uh, Taylor, uh, I always cap uh, interviews with this question unless I just have a brain fart or something. But this question is, uh, and you've given us so many, so I appreciate that. But what is one key tip that you can give us to help us improve our tennis games? You got, I mean, it's easier said than done, but I believe it's, it's the root of all evil is caring about winning today uh, too much. I, I, would, I would just say care about winning nine months from now. Care about being a better player nine months from now because if you care about winning today, really what you're doing is you're setting the bar too low. You're not allowing yourself to make mistakes to improve. Um, that, that, that's pretty much it. Just stop caring about so much winning today, especially in practice. You know what I mean? Even, I mean, look, if you're going out to play the U.S. Open Finals, I'd say, all right, let's get our game face on. But even in the, uh, the course of junior tennis, I mean, you know, how many tournaments are being played? And, you know, if you care every single time about winning this one match at the sacrifice of winning a bigger, more important match, better match nine months down the road, I'd say, man, you're, you're really stopping your progress. You know, and it's not to give an excuse to losing. It's it's to give an opportunity to fearlessly improve your game. You know, you just just let let go of the the fear of losing today. Love it, Taylor. Well, uh, I salute you for a, you know fantastic career uh, and you know just uh, continuing your passion with tennis uh, right now at the uh, Den Tennis Academy at the Birch Racket and Lawn Club uh, in Keller, Texas with your family. And uh, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. And, uh, you know, everybody, obviously, I, I highly encourage you to check out the uh, Dent Tennis Academy, and you're definitely going to get some some fantastic world-class instruction. So, uh, Taylor, thanks a lot for your time. I know it's uh, a little bit late right now, but uh, thanks for talking, and it was a lot of fun. So uh, all the best to you, and uh, best wishes for a prosperous 2020. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. Had a great time. Same here. Thanks, Taylor. All right. I hope you really enjoyed that interview with Taylor Dent. And if you did, and if you get value from the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the show. And you can do that 
uh, at tennisfalls.com slash Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. Um, and I'd li- also like to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show. Uh, and this one is, sometimes we're tested not to show our weaknesses, but to discover our strengths. I really love that quote. Uh, all right. Well, I hope you have a fantastic week and I look forward to you improving your tennis game and I'll be revealing some more details about Tennis Summit 2023 in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. And with that, have a wonderful week once again. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Falls podcast. This is your host, Mirabon, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.